In this two-part show, we explore nine different ways in which fear can govern how we see the world, respond to threats, and how it influences our relationships. We chose this topic because our friend, the neuroscientist Bo Lotto, suggested at the onset of the corona crisis that fear of uncertainty is perhaps our greatest fear. So, what can that unlock for the evolving leader? Let's find out. How are you feeling, John? I'm feeling ready. I'm feeling poised and curious. That's good. <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you? <laughs> no, yeah, I wasn't. I, I'm, I'm it's feel- the opposite well, of what I'm feeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always curious, but I'm not feeling so poised. I'm feeling tired. My kids are doing online schooling for the whole semester, at least. And so every 10 minutes or so, I'm being summoned up, summoned upstairs to deal with Zoom calls that aren't working or they can't print or their computer just isn't functioning somehow. And it's like up and down and up and down and it's exhausting. And it's only yeah. been three days. Well, we, we've just had the, le- the, the latest in the series of life, you know, um, events of uncertainty with the A-level results in the UK where my youngest daughter got her results. They were pretty good and one of them wasn't. Um, but this morning we've heard that it's going to be a good result now. It's been remarked and excellent. So good, um, you know, along with you know the other you know, several million people in the same boat. I'm celebrating and hoping that it's lifting our spirits somewhat. Well, so since we last spoke, I was thinking a lot about how much I enjoyed our hacking uncertainty episode, as well as our uh, conversation we had on personal power. Um, and in that episode, uh, if you haven't heard them, we had a healthy discussion about ego. When is our ego healthy? And when is it self-serving to the detriment of others? Um, both of these topics, both dealing with uncertainty and having a healthy handle on personal power got me thinking about leadership fears. There's something to me that sort of thematically is underpinning many of the conversations we've been having since launching this podcast and it may seem not obvious um, or a bit strange to say, but I feel like this idea of fear is kind of underpinning this notion of our leadership discussion. So today, we're going to be talking about nine types of fear. That's a lot of fear. Yes, it is. Well, so should we start the conversation, try and ground it in a definition of what, what fear is? Yeah, that's a good idea because... Fear may conjure up many uh, different associations and emotions for people, um, such as just general anxiety when they hear the word fear, um, or even a sensation of anger, uh, all of which can produce adverse effects on our thinking. So yeah, I think we, we, we often think of fear as wholly negative, which it generally is, but there is research um, amongst neuroscientists showing that anger, for example, can have a more positive upside. It can help an individual or a team to be more confident in the face of uncertainty. Um, Perhaps it makes them feel like they're taking more control. And of course, fear helps us to become more risk-averse in dangerous situations. Yeah, I agree. Um, Fear is one of our most profound and primal emotional states because its function is to create a change in us that drives fight or flight, um, protecting us from that tiger or that lion out on the Serengeti. Um, It was Charles Darwin who first hypothesized that fear energizes our defensive or aggressive behaviors 
which are central to our very survival. So what's our definition of fear in this conversation, Scott? Uh, well, that's where my job gets a little more tricky because when you think about it, it's not as simple as saying fear is just one thing. There are vast differences about the kinds of fear we experience. There's fear of losing our job, which could create a, a real sense of dread um, or a fear of falling from, you know, fear of heights uh, or the fear you, you feel when you realize you might be breaking too late and that car ahead of you, you're, you're sure to hit it um, and what that brings up in you. We have fears that are rooted in real experiences that are very familiar to us that we recall quite easily and some fears that are rooted in us that incurred in our childhood before our memory was even fully formed. Um, and we experience, you know, so we experience fears based on what has actually happened as well as what we imagine might happen. And when we are doing the latter, it still produces a very real, uh, very uncomfortable sensation, obviously. And if you think about our emotional lives, um, research by Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence suggests that we, we spend around 70% of our lives experiencing predominantly negative emotions, which is quite sobering. Is that right? Well, I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. Um, it makes sense in the context of our primal relationship with fear anyway. So fear helped us help keep us alive. So does the assessment then of all possible threats. You know, we, we might be chasing after good feelings and positivity. That might be what we strive for, but we are conditioned to scan the horizon for that lion. So in modern context, I imagine that we're still scanning, even though for most of us, the line isn't even really there. Is that what the research revealed, or did I just make up a reason that has nothing to do with what they discovered? Well, I think Lisa Filman Barrett, who's going to be one of our guests in a future show, is going to upend a lot of what we think. Mm. So I think we'll put a placeholder on that one. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so when it comes to the emotion of fear... What I think we can talk about with, with some certainty of our own experience, you and, I, you and I have had conversations about this very thing, um, is that we spend a great deal of effort denying that we're fearful. Mm. Um, or maybe said another way, our brains don't like to burn calories. So if I have to face my fears, if I, have to, if I actually have to engage with them, I now need to spend a great deal of energy assessing and analyzing what's behind them. Are they reasonable or unreasonable? If it's the latter, then why am I experiencing it? Is it ever logical? Where are they coming from? You know, it's easier to just sort of tell myself, nope, not afraid. Or, yeah, I was afraid for a second, but it's past. And kind of move on. Um, and I think it's that way with all of our denied emotional areas. Um, and so when we talk about the nine types of bias in a future episode, um, we'll look more closely at the brain's evolution to not have to work very hard and to quickly categorize information in a way that was useful for us to categorize that information at some point in the past, but which may not actually be accurate. It may be useful, but it may be wrong. So another reason why fear stays denied in us is because, especially in organizational context, fear is often seen as a sign of weakness. You know, we even uh, unintentionally, I'm sure, teach our children that. We send them that message sometimes when it's the message of sort of, you know, buck up, 
instead of helping them identify and process what's behind the fear. Um, but when we can't deny our experience of fear any longer, like with most of our quote-unquote negative emotions, we tend to blame the entire thing on some external reality and deny that it could be actually rooted deep in our own psychology. Hmm. So what started this uh, idea for the show was that you've come, Scott, to understand that we see and respond to fear in some very distinctive ways. Should we move on to that? Yeah. Um, cause the, and let me just say, the nuances about how we do this are very important in how we can grow our understanding, uh, which starts by simply placing more value on self-discovery. Um, so before we step into them in detail, my invitation is for us to set down any defense mechanisms we may naturally go to to dismiss and deny what could be true in us and go on a journey of self-discovery. We cannot grow in self-awareness by simply paying more attention to what it is we already know about ourselves. In fact, research shows that thinking about ourselves more may produce less self-awareness in the long run. Um, there is a considerable difference between thinking about ourselves and self-observing. Uh, so by cultivating, you know, if we're successful at cultivating an intentional self-observation process, uh, we can then actually begin to get vulnerable enough to uh, engage with other people in our lives that are safe uh, to really start looking at patterns of behavior that may be interfering with uh, uh, us reaching our goals uh, or creating the cultures we want or taking on some new challenge with confidence. That's pretty interesting. You've just reminded me of something that Carl Jung wrote. I love Carl Jung. I think he, he, he said, um, does he know that? Hmm? Does he know you? Does he know <laughs> I used to write him letters, but oh, I don't sure. think he got them. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Sorry. No, I got, I got off tangent yeah. here a bit. But he said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it'll direct your life and you will call it fate. So I think as we continue to talk about radical self-awareness as this cornerstone for the evolving leader, we need to connect to that whole truth of that ourselves, which includes the things that we fear, so that we can begin to recognize how those unconscious dimensions of fear are impacting our lives, and particularly those who we lead. And what you just said is so important and um, on point for this conversation, because if we're really honest, most of the time we're running on autopilot, right? Going back to the brain's desire to conserve uh, calories. And we sort of just try to automate and navigate without having to expend too much conscious thought in most areas. And that's and there's a reason for that. And that's not what this episode is, is meant to be. But I think starting from that place that we, you know, acknowledging that, yeah, you know, a lot of the time I'm running on autopilot is a great place to start. Yeah, and if, if we want to achieve anything representing excellence, we have to ask ourselves, why would hard work be any different in this sphere? Um, and is it because we, we have to confront our biggest fear? You know, and what sits there is the uncertainty of what we'll find. Some of our biggest business heroes are often described as fearless. Of course, some of them <laughs> might reflect the research that suggests that many you know, lack emotional intelligence and they're removed from their sense of fear. But we know the other type, the true fearless leader. And it's not that they don't experience fear, far from it. But they surface and they confront fears 
And in so recognizing and understanding them, they've moved them from the unconscious part of their brain where the amygdala, panic and terror engulf their thought processes. And they've moved them to the prefrontal cortex where they can investigate them, where they can become mm. more useful information in the form of anxiety and unease and worry that help them to become alert and focused on the risks. See it as information um, so that they can be still capable of their best thinking. Mm. Yeah, and the emotional intelligence coaching work that I do, um, I help leaders uh, uncover their desires and their fears, which I find are almost always inextricably linked. In fact, oftentimes I find mm. that the, the person I'm working with thinks that they've been moving toward a core desire when, when in actuality they've been moving away from some core denied fear. Um, I think because so often we tell ourselves we're moving towards something uh, when in actuality we're moving away from something. Our desire, quote-unquote desire, is a perceived solution to some unconscious denied fear uh, that's running the show. And I think this is in part at least what Carl Jung was referring to when he said that the unconscious will direct your life and you'll call it fate. Um, we are hardwired to believe that everything we do is with intentionality and comes from some really proactive place. Um, when oftentimes it, it just may be born out of um, our blind agenda to feel safer in some way. Okay, Scott, can we talk about the nine types of fear now? Yeah, let's do it. So as a starting place, let me just say, um, we're not going to be talking about irrational fears, phobias, or any kind of psychological disorders of which we are unqualified to do so. Uh, what I do want to cover are nine core fears that are common to nine different personality types, nine different types of leaders. So as you listen, uh, my invitation to you is to think about which of these core fears you relate to most. Uh, you'll probably relate to all of them because, again, these are, these are common fears, and I'm sure they've been an experience of most of us at some point in time. So what you want to identify is what is your core fear? Um, if you were honest, if you're completely honest with yourself, or if you had asked your team or, or some other stakeholders in your life, um, which one of these is most likely driving the show more than any of the others? Um, the other thing I would say too, um, if you can't find it that way, Think about the one that may trigger you the most where you listen to it and you go, oh, I don't like that. I, I don't like that one. I don't like when I experience people that are clearly clearly living out from that kind of fear because sometimes um, that's another way into some blind spots for us, something that actually is in us so, so deep and denied that it upsets us when we hear about it or when we see somebody else acting out from it, but it's it's kind of revealing that there's some truth of that fear in us too. So. The first type of fear is the fear that I'm not good enough, that somehow I'm corrupted or deficient. Um, but the person driven by this fear isn't simply uh, afraid that they aren't good enough based on some external measure of success, but by an internal one. This fear is rooted in an unconscious um, or sometimes conscious belief that they are bad, um, which sets them on a path of never wanting to be wrong so they can prove to themselves that they aren't bad uh, and that they are in fact good. So at the, at the core of this person, they see imperfections 
everywhere around them and in themselves and are motivated to live up to this impossibly high standard that they have then set for themselves and everyone else. Of course, they never quite succeed at this, so this becomes a kind of perfectionism that can seep out as a sort of bubbling resentment for missing the mark, uh, whether they missed the mark or somebody else has missed the mark. Um, so it often shows up as, as kind of a rigidity, which is often how they're experienced by other people. They want to be the most fair, but their perfectionism tendency can lead them to seeming sort of unfair, critical, demanding, and impossible to please. But to them, uh, they're not motivated by fear at all. They convince themselves that they're moving toward a desire to help improve the world, but this is something of a self-deception um, because the desire to perfect is born from a fear that they aren't good enough and so they set off to prove to the world and themselves that they are, in fact, good enough. So I think you can spot this leader through their teams and the culture they create around them. I'm, I'm sure, like me, you've seen this kind of leader thrive, mm. especially when it's coupled with really high expertise, mm -hmm. you know, high intelligence and high expertise. But of course, it, it comes at a really high cost to those around them often in the form of constant turnover of people who are never quite good enough. And the people that do stay are ground into a kind of victim mode, which ultimately reinforces the status quo, and that hinders true growth and innovation. Mm. Yeah, which is uh, ironic, because what they want is to be good, and for others to be good, and for essentially everything to be good and right. Uh, they have very black and white thinking. Uh, but the denied fear creates the exact opposite result from what they're driving toward which we're going to see that a lot, John, as we talk through these is that, and I'll point them out um, from time to time, is that there's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that can happen when the fear is denied, um, where the, the person then gets the exact opposite result that they were after or trying to avoid. So let's jump into the second type. Uh, the second type of fear is a fear of being unloved or unwanted. In business context, this shows up as a fear of being unneeded. Um, the fear drives a desire to feel loved by their colleagues, their manager, and their teams. But in business, where often priority is tasks over relationships, this core need often goes unmet. So for this leader, it then feeds a limited belief that they're right. In fact, they're not needed. And uh, they believe this not based on evidence uh, as much as they just, they don't feel it. It's very driven from a sort of emotional center. And when they're not aware that this core fear is at play, um, they can be experienced as somewhat manipulative, especially if they're in a prominent role, almost, and I, and I think this is unconscious most of the time, almost creating problems just to solve them. And then in so doing, they've proven to everyone that they are in fact needed. So I kind of create friction and problems, and then I can create a solution and I prove my value. Uh, but when they do the hard work of developing self-observation practices which lead to radical self-awareness, this fear then diminishes and the relational intelligence that they naturally have enables them to actually become very fantastic servant leaders. Yeah, and I, I've seen both sides of that coin. Unfortunately, mostly the former. I think that's primarily because emotions are still regarded with so little importance in organizational life. Why do you think that is? I think it's complex and it starts with the cultures um, in childhood where, you know, 
parents were taught by their parents and in the school life that emotions are things to be kind of suppressed in some way because they are messy and they get in the way of logic. They get in the way of good judgment. Mm. I think, uh, you know, we'll explore this in, in further shows that they're quite the opposite. They are actually just part of the spectrum of information on which we make sense of the world, gain meaning and make good good choices. Mm. So I think, you know, that that's something that needs to be flipped. But it's part of the the kind of prevailing culture in many organizations and society at large. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to the third type of fear. This one is uh, a fear of worthlessness um, and usually doesn't show up as fear at all, though, because in fact, those driven from a fear of not having worth work really hard to achieve great success for themselves and others so that they will feel worthy, that they actually have worth. And they're usually very disconnected from this fear. Their sense of worth is connected to their achievements, and so then they then chase down success, often with reckless abandon, and, and usually become quite successful. Uh, but because that fear of worthlessness is always right below the surface, they tend to never be satisfied with their most recent accomplishment. The thing with this type of core fear is that businesses recognize and reward accomplishment, of course. So it can be really difficult for this type of leader to get in touch with this core fear because they keep getting recognized and rewarded for their behavior and achievements. The risk is that if it goes on, you know, continuing to be denied, this fear being denied by this person, it can lead to burnout and uh, both personal burnout and burning out their teams from this sort of continual focus on the next big project or goal without stopping to let themselves and others truly celebrate a previous success or even have a well-deserved rest. The other thing about those motivated from this type of fear is that they don't generally learn much from failures because their instinct is to deny failures or just distance themselves from people and projects that won't make them look good. Yeah, that's so true. I think fear-driven accomplishment is perhaps the the kind of type of fear that we see the most. And it's so hard to help leaders come to terms with their fear because uh, they kind of construe it as their motivation. Mm. And I think the the key for them is to understand how it's their core sense of value or worth that's coming under threat in the situations that you've described and when that's triggered. And if they can start to become more connected with that, you know, why why does that feel true to them? Um, that becomes then a kind of deeply experienced truth that will ultimately help them to make the distinction between the fear and their motivation and goals. I agree. And I think for them to stop and just frequently ask themselves, you know, who am I and what do I want? It can kind of help illuminate the difference for them between, you know, positive goals um, driven from a, a, a healthy place and sort of fear-driven accomplishments. Because often the goals they're after are so intertwined with the denied fear. Um, it's the sort of fuel in their engine that they don't know when they're producing for the good of others in the organization or when they're simply performing for applause so uh, so that you'll admire them and make them feel worthy. So should I jump to the fourth one? Please. All right. So this is a complex one, um, just like the people in this category. Uh, this core fear is both a fear of not fitting in as well as a fear of being ordinary. So essentially we're calling this the fear of having no identity or personal significance. So these folks in the business place and in much of their lives really feel like 
they're kind of on the outside looking in. They may succumb to uh, a sense of imposter syndrome in day-to-day roles or prominent roles because they fear they either don't belong or fear that they've sold out their authentic self by taking a role that feels too ordinary or too, quote-unquote, corporate. Um, However, instead of working harder to adapt to the culture and moving past that sort of inauthentic feeling or that imposter syndrome, they're more likely to pursue being the most unique person in every room. Um, They are often the most creative people in your business because they are driven toward authenticity and to discover, you know, what is unique and true, Um, you know, whether that's behind a product or a strategy, uh, customer experience, what have you. Um, However, underneath it all is a fear of being less than. This can lead to emotional volatility when they're not doing the hard work of self-development, which can cause problems for their teams who may get confused about which priorities matter or what the priorities even are because messages from this leader can change with their emotional tides, um, which are all rooted in the fear of being anything less than completely genuine, completely authentic. I think that question that you posed in the previous uh, fear about who am I and what I want is so important for this um, type of individual because repeatedly in our research when we ask um, teams, what do you want from your leader? The, you know, in the top five uh, responses is always consistency and knowability. We want the people on whom we depend to be knowable because we crave safety around them. And the unpredictable leader who might be you know, incredibly creative sparks some far deeper spheres because we don't know how to be around them. Which again, John, like the patterns we are seeing with all types of these core fears the fear itself generates a self-fulfilling prophecy, often creating the exact result that the individual was afraid would happen. Unfortunately, then, that this often reinforces a message that the fear was right, not that the fear was wrong, but that you let it consume you and it drove you off a cliff. So, you know, I guess the, the call to action, again, is to start self-observing, um, to see, you know, do you identify with any of these first four core fears And how can you start to uh, evaluate their impact on your effectiveness? So shall we pause this conversation there and pick up on the five remaining types in our next episode? That sounds good. I mean, you've given me personally a lot to think about already. So this will give me and hopefully our audience some time to metabolize that and get prepared for the next time. Sounds good. Okay. Well, until next time, the world is evolving. Are you? We hope you found this episode useful. In part two, we look at the other five types of fear and what the evolving leader can do to recognize them in themselves and others and grow past a reactive relationship towards them. 